Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQBD Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, after Georgia sent two Democrats to the U.S. Senate and Joe Biden became the first Democratic presidential candidate to win the state in nearly three decades, Georgia's GOP-led state legislature is proposing a raft of laws that would make it harder for people, especially black voters, to vote. We'll learn more about what's happening there and across the country as 43 states introduce more than 250 bills, including two in California, to limit voting access. And we'll learn about the status of efforts by congressional Democrats to pass H.R. 1, which would put in place uniform federal election standards. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. When Georgia Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock gave his first speech to the U.S. Senate last week, he spoke of voter suppression, calling the more than 250 bills across 43 states a massive and unabashed assault on voting rights unlike anything seen since the Jim Crow era. This is Jim Crow in new clothes. Since the January election, some 250 voter suppression bills have been introduced by state legislatures all across the country, from Georgia to Arizona, from New Hampshire to Florida, using the big lie of voter fraud as a pretext for voter suppression. The same big lie that led to a violent insurrection on this very capital. President Biden, as you may remember, won the state of Georgia by some 12,000 votes, the first Democrat to do so in three decades. Joining me now, Ense Ufot uh, from Georgia to bring us a deeper look at what's being proposed there. Ense Ufot is CEO of the New Georgia Project, a nonpartisan organization that protects voter rights. Welcome to Forum. Hello, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. And Ense Ufot, how would you characterize what's happening in Georgia right now with the changes to voting that GOP state lawmakers are proposing? I think... I would characterize it as white supremacy's desperate last gasp for relevancy and for breath um, that what we're seeing in Georgia, and let's be honest, 42 other states around the country, um, is a unifying issue uh, that the white supremacists who have hijacked this country's Republican Party um, are organizing around uh, to hold on to power for just a little bit longer. So let's dig into what you feel like um, is really 
they're proposing things with regard to what many headlines across the country have described as specifically harming black voters. Could you talk first about the proposal to remove Sunday as an early voting day? Yes. So Sosa the Polls um, is a long-held tradition within um, the Black Christian Church. Uh, And the idea is that uh, communities that worship together also have um, have a history of voting together as an expression of their faith. Uh, Long-held tradition in the South, long-held tradition in Georgia, and um, there have been attempts in the past uh, to get rid of Sunday voting. Um, and so this is yet another in a long line of attempts to attack sort of cultural institutions um, and the ways in which uh, Black voters and voters of color participate in our elections, in, in particularly given the historic levels of participation that we just saw from Black voters and voters of color during the 2020 cycle. So they're not proposing removing any other day in early voting, just Sunday. Just Sunday. Well, they—that's not true. They are planning on reducing the number of early voting days altogether, including Sunday. Um, and that is—and that's why, you know, for us, the alarm bells have rang um, because it's not just an attack on Black voters. Uh, Asian Americans uh, are voted early um, and voted by mail. Eighty-five percent of Asian Americans in Georgia voted early and voted by mail. And so attacking Sunday voting, attacking early voting and narrowing the number of days that Georgians can vote early is a direct hit on our multiracial, multi-ethnic progressive majority. So they are reducing the number of days for early voting and even shortening the hours, correct, of how how long you can be in line to vote. That is correct. You mentioned vote by mail. Can you tell us a little bit more of the, the background with vote by mail? Because my understanding was, for example, no excuse vote by mail, meaning that you don't have to give a justification for why you want to vote by mail. You can just request it, was something that was passed by Republicans in 2005. Your understanding would be correct uh, that for 16 years, uh, Georgians have had no excuse, no fault, vote by mail, absentee balloting, whatever you want to call it. The idea that you can request a ballot, it will be sent to your home, you can complete it and submit it via Dropbox or at the County Board of Elections, or even just dropping it off at a polling location on Election Day. Um, that Republicans and, and more specifically white voters have been voting this way for 16 years in Georgia. And so while many states, actually most states, expanded to this method of voting because we're in the middle of a pandemic, that was not the case in Georgia. That Georgia had been ahead of the curve uh, in terms of making voting um, accessible to, voting in this way accessible to Georgians. And And so, so, yeah. 
And so that is, it also makes the attacks on them that much more egregious uh, and that much more sort of naked in terms of what the aims are, that there were not questions or concerns about election integrity, um, election security, voter fraud, when it was mostly white conservatives that were availing themselves of voting in this particular way. But now that we're in the middle of a pandemic and everyone one uh, saw fit to vote this way somehow um, is a cause for concern. I see. So who mostly used mail voting before the pandemic, you're saying it was older, whiter voters, and who mostly used it in 2020 or used it a lot more than usual were voters of color who tend to vote, especially Black voters, overwhelmingly Democratic. So can no, you No, talk- it was everyone. It's just everyone included. It didn't exclude people of color, and that was unacceptable to them. So can you talk about the changes that are being proposed to vote by mail at this point? Uh, I mean, so I will say this. I, there is zero, absolutely nothing that is redeemable in any of these anti-voting bills. And so I'm happy to go through the litany of the ways in which they are being attacked. But I think that it's what's really important to notice here is that the the politics of white nationalism um, that many people thought sort of went away when the former president of the United States was kicked off of Twitter Um, or folks thought went away when the national media attention turned to something else besides the January 6th uh, insurrection. Um, Or they thought it went away when Parler got kicked out of the app stores. They have not gone anywhere. Uh, Heritage Foundation or Heritage Action, which is the, um, the... the advocacy arm of the Heritage Foundation has spent $700,000 on ads to support and to to, uh, drum up interest or support for these anti-voting bills in Georgia. They've never weighed in on uh, state legislation ever in the history of their organization. And the first foray into state legislation, particularly around voting, it's to support these fascist anti-voting bills um, at an extraordinary amount of money. Um, And so, yes, they are attacking vote by mail. They want to require people to uh, submit a copy of your voter ID or or, or submit a copy of your photo ID um, when you request the ballot. And submit a copy of your photo ID when you submit your ballot in order for it to be counted. And they would also basically limit absentee voting to those 65 and older or people with a disability or who will be away from their precinct on Election Day, correct? That's correct. So currently you don't have to be away from your precinct and you don't have to give an excuse. Um, You would have to prove uh, that you were hospitalized or prove that you were traveling outside of the jurisdiction, or again, prove that you were over the age of 65 in order to vote by mail. And as you point out, it the, the, the blatant nature of it feels so obvious. Are you even hearing some traditional Republicans who are wary of some of these proposals? No. Not at all. Basically, no, you feel like the, the Republican Party has expressed uniform support, at least in the state level, has expressed uniform support for these Brian Kemp and the like, Governor Kemp and the like. 
I'm also not aware of any national Republicans that have expressed uh, sort of concern um, or opposition to these bills. Again, Georgia might be ground zero for these types of voter suppression attacks, but these are these bills are on the books in 43 states across our country. Mm-hmm. They popped up in the past six weeks, almost simultaneously. Um, and I heard, I've heard Senator Ted Cruz uh, and Senators Mitch McConnell ex- uh, express vocal support uh, for these bills uh, that essentially are telling us that they don't see a way for Republicans to win ever again in the future if they aren't able to dismantle our elections infrastructure across the country in this way. So no, not one, not a single one. And Democrats' ability to block these in the state house is basically non-existent. Um, that's the case in Georgia. I mean, I think that constitutionally, Georgia Republic, uh, the, the Georgia legislature, the only thing that they are required to pass by constitution is a budget. Um, and so I think that Democrats have the ability to sort of use the power of the minority party to gum up the works, particularly if there are key pieces of legislation um, that the Republicans want um, that they can't get with along party lines. Um, I don't know what that is, uh, but that feels like an opportunity for Democrats in Georgia, at least, to intervene um, with with politics uh, to stop these trash bills from passing. What is a key strategy for your group to curtail these bills? What are you trying to do on the ground at New Georgia Project? All of the things, right? So one, companies like Delta, Coca-Cola, UPS, um, Georgia Power uh, have spent over seven million dollars supporting uh, these Republican vote suppressors. They are literally funding Republican voter suppression, and so we ha- are, we launched a corporate accountability campaign hmm. uh, to, to try to pressure these corporations. Uh, we can say more about that right after the break. We're talking with Ense Ufot, CEO of the New Georgia Project. We're talking about efforts at the state and federal levels to suppress the right to vote. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. In state legislatures across the country, Republican lawmakers are introducing what some have called an avalanche of bills that would restrict voting access. And we're looking at efforts to keep voters from the polls and how others are trying to combat this. Joining us now is Dale Ho, director of the ACLU Voting Rights Project. Dale Ho, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. And Ense Ufad is with us, CEO of the New Georgia Project, a nonpartisan organization that protects voter rights. And Ense Ufad, just before the break, you were talking about efforts by your organization. Uh, you were talking about a corporate accountability effort. Can you just to say a little bit more about that? Yeah, so um, Georgia is home to, I think, 18 Fortune 500 companies, uh, companies like UPS, uh, Coca-Cola, 
Delta Airlines, Home Depot, uh, Aflac, et cetera. And between those companies, they've contributed over $7 million just to the sponsors of these Republican voter suppression bills, not the Republican Party at large, just these sponsors. And so we are say, we're asking them to stop funding Republican voter suppression or voter suppression period, um, and to affirm uh, the right to vote by coming out in support of HR one and HR four. Um, so. That's just one of the things that we're doing in this moment um, to try to protect our democracy um, and stave off these Republican attacks. And and so, Ufat, how likely is it that in a state like Georgia, that any of these rules could change the political outcome? Oh, my goodness. It is extremely likely if any one of these bills, and I should also add that we are talking about over 50 bills that were have been introduced just in the Georgia state legislature alone. And if any one of these bills would have been the law of the land uh, in November, they would have overturned uh, the results of the November election um, and possibly uh, the January runoffs as well. Um, and so that is clearly, it's super clear to us, uh, the intent um, behind these bills. They are not designed to make our elections safer. Um, and it's because uh, Georgia is now a battleground state, right, uh, where the races are won and lost by margins as slim as 0.25 percentage points. Let me invite listeners to join the conversation. How are you interpreting these GOP-led efforts to make it harder for people to vote? Are there laws that you'd like to see to make it easier to vote? You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or at KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Dale Ho, what we frequently hear from Republicans is that these laws are needed to restore confidence in the nation's system of voting. Can you talk about how big an issue voter fraud is? Well, I think what's really remarkable is that the justification for these laws that's being given, you know, for, being put forth in a number of these states, um, voter confidence based on assertions of fraud. Um, that the very same purveyors of that justification are the same purveyors of the big lie that the 2020 election was somehow infected with problems of fraud or lack of integrity. The same people who've spread that lie, who've had no evidence to back it up, who have repeatedly gone on television despite the absence of such evidence and pervade it um, and you know, supported the Trump campaign's efforts to overturn the outcome of the election, um, despite not being able to present any such evidence to support that um, assertion in court, now say that because of all of these assertions of fraud, there's a lack of confidence. And now we need to crack down on voting, make voting harder just for the sake of supposedly giving people more confidence when they're the ones who created the confidence problem, if any such um, problem exists. So I find the whole thing a bit ironic um, to put it mildly, um, and it speaks, it just reeks of bad faith. There was no f substantial evidence of significant fraud in the 2020 presidential election um, when they couldn't find it. Then they said simply the assertions of fraud, which they themselves spread, are, 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 are a basis for making it harder for people to vote. President Biden issued an executive order on promoting access to voting 
What does this do? Does it change anything? Well, it's a very welcome move by the president. Um, a lot of it um, is directed at federal agencies to see what they can do to um, make voter registration more accessible in the pro- in the process of um, 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 providing services to um, citizens. Um, so, so we're going to have to, I think, wait and see to see how all of it is implemented. Um, you know, I think one thing in the bill that I mean, the executive order that is is really helpful is. Um, people who are in federal custody or are being released from federal custody are going to get information about their different states' rules for when they become eligible to vote. You know, there are a number of states in which people remain eligible to vote even while incarcerated or um, become eligible to vote, to vote upon um, release from physical custody. Um, and then there are states where people remain ineligible to, ineligible to vote while on probation or supervised release. And that's not always clear to people. Um, there have been instances of people, high profile ones in states like Texas, of people on, on, on supervised release um, for federal offenses who didn't realize that they were ineligible to vote and then end up um, registering and, uh, and or casting a ballot and, and getting themselves in trouble, which I don't think anyone wants. So I, I think that's an important executive order um, just to, you know, even for people who aren't eligible to vote, making clear that they understand that so they don't end up um, putting themselves in legal jeopardy. I think that that's all really important. All that being said, these are relatively minor changes to the voting system. So much of our election system is operated at the state and local levels. That's where um, rules on eligibility um, get made. That's where rules like early voting and vote by mail and the like um, get made. And so there's really, I think, only so much the president can do via mm-hmm. executive order here. Um, and that's why you're seeing all of these state to state by state fights over voter suppression measures. Well, let me go to caller Frank in San Jose. Hi, Frank. Hi. Uh, thanks for this uh, this discussion. Um, uh, listening to what you just said, uh, making this a state by state battle, uh, in my personal opinion, really uh, complicates life. And so my question to you is, uh, given the fact that 80 million eligible voters did not even vote in 2020, uh, wouldn't it be wiser for all of us to focus on eliminating the filibuster at the Senate level? And to what extent would the passage of H.R. 1 and H.R. 4 defeat these Republican efforts across Mm -hmm. the country? Frank, thanks. Dale Ho, could you tell us about H.R.? One, the so-called For the People Act, and also H.R. 4, which, of course, is John Lewis's Voting Rights Act as well, what they would do in terms of dealing with these state-by-state issues. And then we can also go further into the filibuster as well. But um, but thanks, Frank. And go ahead, Dale. Yeah, thanks for that question, Frank. It's a, it's a really good one. Um, so for listeners who aren't um, familiar with these two bills, H.R. 1 would modernize our voting system by setting a national floor um, requiring states to provide a number of forms of opportunities for voter registration, automatic registration, um, election day registration, which 21 states have. um, Nine of the 10 states with the highest voter turnout in 2020 have election day registration, um, in-person early voting, no excuse absentee voting, online voter registration, Um, It's an attempt to modernize and create a standard floor um, so that there are basic means of access that citizens have in all 50 states, regardless of where you live, Um, in addition to a lot of other things like nonpartisan redistricting reform. But there are a bunch of basic, I think, very important voting rights access reforms 
um, that HR1 would make standard across the country. Um, HR4 is an attempt to bring the 1965 Voting Rights Act um, into the present and restore um, some of what was lost when in 2013, the Supreme Court issued a decision, Shelby County versus Holder, which significantly weakened the Voting Rights Act. Uh, before that decision, um, states that had the worst histories of discrimination in voting were required to obtain approval from the federal government before making any changes to their voting laws. Um, a really, really important protection for voters of color. Um, the Supreme Court immobilized that. It said that um, the way of determining which states were subject to that federal supervision um, was outdated, that it was based in the 1960s and 70s. So what H.R. 4 tries to do is bring the what we call federal pre-clearance voting rights regime into the 21st century and make sure that states that have more recently discriminated in their voting processes are once again subject to that kind of federal supervision. I think if you put these two things together, H.R. 1 and H.R. 4, they would do a tremendous amount to fight back against the voter suppression efforts that we're seeing. Um, you know, we, you know, we were talking earlier about um, Georgia trying to get rid of no excuse um, absentee voting. Um, HR1 would make that impossible because every state would have to provide it. Um, a number of the other cutbacks that Georgia is contemplating, if Georgia were again subject to federal supervision, um, it wouldn't be able to make those cutbacks to voting access without getting approval from the Department of Justice beforehand, which I think, you know, given the circumstances would be would be quite difficult for Georgia to obtain. So th th these two protections would, I think, do a lot um, for voting rights around the country. And what would it require to pass them in the Senate? Because it got passed in the House. H.R. Uh, 1 passed in the House. H.R. 4 has not yet the Voting Rights Act, um, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Um, but, I, you know, I think most people, most observers expect it to. Um, in the Senate right now, um, legislation, non-economic legislation can't pass through um, um, the budget reconciliation process, which was used for the COVID relief package, it requires, um, you know, 60 votes in order to get a floor debate, uh, I mean, sorry, a floor vote um, on standard non-economic legislation. So as of right now, unless there are 60 votes to permit such a vote, um, these new voting rights proposals uh, will not get an up or down vote in the, in the Senate. Hence the reason that there is so much discussion right now about eliminating or reforming or eliminating the filibuster as well. And and say, Ufad, I do want to ask you, you know, how much is the filibuster on the radar of the people that you are talking to at the New Georgia Project, the, the voters that you talk to, uh, and in terms of what they think should happen with it? Yeah, I think that the filibuster, much like gerrymandering, are two nonsense words and that we absolutely have to do a better job and a more aggressive job of talking about what they mean and what they do. Um, it's not on people's radar at all. I mean, again, I think that there's some like some name recognition that's starting to happen because we're talking about it more. Um, but there absolutely needs to be a popular education campaign to talk about how Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans um, are using the legislative filibuster to kill any meaningful legislation um, that the working people have prioritized in this moment. Well, I want to read a couple of comments, and I know you need to leave us and say Ufat. So I want to read this one from Patricia, who writes, Yay for the New Georgia Project. Congratulations for your hard work and success in electing two diverse senators. My groups here made many calls to help voters navigate early voting and vote by mail. 
That's so amazing. <laughs> I'm so moved. And literally, that is how we are going to win. And that is how we are going to protect ourselves. Um, and that's how we're going to stabilize our government in the face of these attacks on our democracy and these disinformation campaigns um, that are designed to shake our faith in each other, uh, in the rule of law, and in our elections. It's with each other. Well, Ense Ufat, CEO of the New Georgia Project, thank you so much for joining us and giving us a sense of what's happening in Georgia. Thank you so much for having me. Again, Dale Ho is with us, director of the ACLU Voting Rights Project, and you, our listeners, are with us. How are you interpreting interpreting these GOP-led efforts to make it harder for people to vote? You can tell us by calling 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQBD Forum or email us forum at kqbd.org. And let me go to Janelle in Oakland. Hi, Janelle. Good morning. Um, my comment is in response to what listeners think is going on when conservative politicians forward anti-voter of color legislation. Um, your previous guest who just left us is just fantastic. I'm very thankful. And I believe that Republican factions in Georgia and across the nation are forwarding this kind of legislation to disenfranchise voters of color because the current bastardized version of the GOP is dying. And this legislation is an attempt to extend its dying gas. The idea that this legislation is meant to protect voting rights is a farce. And I'll take my uh, response off the air. Thanks for doing this, guys. Thanks, Janelle. Appreciate it. And Dale Ho Lewis writes something similar. Lewis writes, the white supremacist Republican voter suppression makes me think of a quote by David Frum. If conservatives become convinced that they cannot win democratically, they will not abandon conservatism. They will reject democracy, end quote. They are abandoning democracy and the voting and the voting suppression in the January insurrection. They are ignoring the wills of all Americans, especially black Americans. Noel tweets, it's obvious that Republicans need to suppress the vote to retain power in this political system. This effort reminds me of apartheid in South Africa. Pete tweets, this egregious attempt by Republicans to stifle democracy should serve as their death knell. It should have just the opposite of its intended effect, unifying nationwide forces against them. In a less Kafka-esque United States, this would be a given, but how can we assuredly make it so? Clearly, our listeners are are feeling very much, um, they're feeling similarly about this. And I, I am just curious, Dale Ho, I asked this question of Ense Ufot in the, about whether or not some Republicans are are where you're concerned about these efforts, because at least with our listeners, you know, the blatant attempt at voter suppression seems really clear. Um, and I've been reading op-eds that there may be some areas for bipartisan support on this. I mean, I guess I just want to get a sense from you how you're interpreting the political landscape on this and the conversations that are happening in Republican circles. Well, I think one thing that your listeners are um very much right about is that it's impossible to understand the struggle for voting rights in America without recognizing the place of race in that fight. Um, Obviously, you know, everyone's familiar by now with the um, story of the Selma Montgomery March and Bloody Sunday and um, how that moment was instrumental in the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which I think really for the first time in huge swaths of the country, um, you know, heralded a real democracy, right? You you didn't have much of a democracy in um, many parts of the South and in the former Confederacy um, for much of the 20th century. It was a Voting Rights Act that changed that. And we had a consensus in this country, 
I think over the next 45 years across ideological lines, across party lines, that discrimination in voting was unacceptable. When the uh, key provisions of the Voting Rights Act were passed in 65, many of them were set to expire after only five years. Um, Richard Nixon signed a reauthorization of that and of those of them in 1970. Um, Gerald Ford did again in 1975. Ronald Reagan did again in 1982 at the signing ceremony. He called the Voting Rights Act the crown jewel of American civil rights protections. And then in 2006, a reauthorization of those same provisions passed 390 to 33 in the House and 98 to nothing in the Senate and was signed into law by George W. Bush. Each of these reauthorizations of the Voting Rights Act were signed into law by Republican presidents, passed by bipartisan majorities in Congress, and something changed in the last 10 years. And what I think that is, is the emergence of voters of color as a major you know, factor in the, in the electorate and, and, and in the outcome of presidential elections. The 2008 presidential election was the first election in our nation's history in which voters of color constituted a quarter of the nation's eligible electorate. Um, and you had huge surges in turnout amongst um, voters of color, black voters, um, Hispanic voters, Asian American voters, um, which obviously carried the nation's um, first black president into office. Um, we've seen um, significant amounts of polarization in the electorate along racial lines since then. Um, the suppression tactics that we're seeing are largely targeting exactly the measures of participation disproportionately used by voters of color. One sweeping measure that was passed in North Carolina in 2013 was struck down by a federal court as targeting black voters with, quote, almost surgical precision by trying to eliminate or cut back just about every form of voting and registration that was disproportionately used by black voters in the state. And what we're seeing now is, you know, uh, we, we've been talking about earlier in, in, in the aftermath of the 2020 presidential election, um, attacks on the methods of participation used by voters of color in the most recent election. Yes, and we'll talk more about that after the break. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. We've all got those parts of our house where the Internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about efforts across the country to restrict access to voting with Dale Ho, director of the ACLU Voting Rights Project. And joining us now is Eliza Swearen-Becker, counsel for the Voting Rights and Elections Program at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law. Eliza Swearen-Becker, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You, our listeners, are also with us. Give us a call, 866-733-6786, with your reaction to these GOP-led efforts to make it harder for people to vote in states across the country. Again, 866-733-6786 is the number. Our email address, forum at kqed.org. Our Twitter handle and Facebook, you can find us there, at KQED Forum. And uh, Eliza Swearen-Becker we were talking earlier specifically about Georgia and some of the proposals there with regard to reducing early voting days, reducing the hours that you can do early voting, eliminating Sunday voting, and also going after vote by mail eligibility as well. Can you tell us what you are seeing broadly in other parts of the country? Are you seeing these kinds of proposals and what else? 
Yes. Well, unfortunately, what we're seeing in Georgia is an indicator of what we're seeing across the country as well. State lawmakers in nearly every state in the country have introduced bills to restrict voting access. They are particularly targeted at mail voting and early voting methods of voting that people used in much larger numbers last year when voting during the pandemic and trying not to gather together on election day. In addition to restrictions that target those methods of voting, there are also restrictions that introduce new voter ID provisions that would make it easier for election officials to purge voters from the rolls, even eligible voters based on faulty data. And we're also seeing cutbacks to methods of registration. So there are efforts to eliminate election day registration where it exists or to make registration harder by requiring a proof of citizenship, for example. There are studies out there that are showing that voter suppression doesn't necessarily help the GOP, particularly the vote by mail proposals that are put out there. Uh, Can you talk about, you know, what the studies generally show with regard to that and why it is something, though, that it seems like a lot of GOP-led state houses are wanting to restrict? Well, you're right that historically voters of both major parties, Republicans and Democrats, use vote by mail in relatively equal numbers. That changed last year in large part because the former president launched a campaign against vote by mail and lied about the security of vote by mail, uh, lied about the, the possibility of fraud with vote by mail. And as a result, we did see Democrats take advantage of that method of voting more last year than, than the proportion in, in previous years. What we also saw was younger voters vote by mail more than they typically had in the past and voters of color vote by mail more than they typically had in the past. So now state lawmakers are going after mail voting, trying to make it harder to qualify to vote by mail, harder to get mail ballots, putting stumbling blocks in the way at every step of the vote by mail process. But it may be short sighted to the extent that that's being advanced for a partisan purpose because it's not clear that the way that voters used mail voting last year during the pandemic when folks were scared of uh, gathering together, that that's going to hold in the future. And in fact, those restrictions on mail voting may hurt Republican voters going forward as well. And I think it's quite likely that it will. Yes, though it sounds like you are saying that there is concern that Trump's lies about vote by mail could actually have a lasting effect. And so there is concern that, in fact, Democrats will use it more often and Republican voters may not. It's definitely a a question to watch. Let me go to caller Craig in San Francisco. Hi, Craig. Join us. Hi. Hi. Thank you. Uh, My question is for the yes. And and I'm curious about the likelihood of these um, Republican uh, voter suppression um, tactics actually being implemented, or will they be, um, I guess, held up in uh, or tied up in the courts hmm. and challenged in the courts. And I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you. Craig, thanks. Uh, Dale Ho, do you want to take that one? Sure. Um, I mean, the breadth of these efforts is um, staggering. You know, the Brennan Center for Justice for Eliza works is cataloging them in real time. And we have over, you know, I think at last count, they've, they've, they've identified over 250 proposed measures to restrict access in over 40 states. And you know, some of these laws are going to pass. I mean, there's just no way. And some of them already have in Iowa, an omnibus bill, which, 
shortens the early voting period, shortens the hours to vote on election day, shortens the period to request um, an absentee ballot. It's already been signed into law by the governor. Um, so so I, I think realistically, we have to expect that a number of them are going to pass. Now, that being said, I think there is less unanimity on um, the side of um, restricting voting access than um, one might fear. Um, at the same time that we're seeing all of these proposals to restrict voting rights, we're seeing um, efforts to make some of the accommodations from the that were made due to the pandemic last year to make um, voting easier and safer, um, efforts to make some of those measures permanent in places like Kentucky, mm. where the Republican Secretary of State is supporting early voting and no excuse absentee voting. Alabama, where the Republican Secretary of State there is also um, supporting the adoption of no excuse absentee voting for um, the first time in the state's history. So, you know, I, I, I don't want us to become complacent, but I also don't want those positive stories to get lost. There is support, um, you know, on, 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 on all sides of the ideological spectrum here for expanding access. And I think that gives us a fighting chance to stop some of the most restrictive measures from um, becoming law. Interesting. Eliza Swearen-Becker, California is kind of a case in point. We see two bills that have been introduced that uh, would be put probably in the category of suppressing the vote. And and then we have four, I, I believe, or so that are trying to expand voting access. Could you just quickly describe what's happening in California? Yeah, absolutely. I think what we're seeing in California is a microcosm of what we're seeing across the country and, and which Dale described, which is really this push-pull where there are many state lawmakers that are trying to restrict voting access, including state lawmakers in California. For example, there's a purge bill that was introduced in California. There's a bill that would require additional identification requirements when you submit your absentee ballot. So those bills would make it harder to either remain on the rolls or to vote absentee. Um, But then we're also seeing bills to expand voting access. So there are efforts to extend the policy that was implemented in 2020 to send mail ballots to all California voters going forward in the future. Um, There are efforts um, to make sure that the comparison of signatures when a mail ballot is submitted is done in a um, formalized way, that that there's a reasonable doubt standard before the voter's ballot is thrown out that election officials can reach out to a voter if there's a signature issue by mail, by but also by phone or email or any other manner to allow them to correct it. Um, there's an effort to make it easier for um, military and overseas voters to, to get registered and cast their ballots. So California, I think, already is you know, ahead of many states in the country in terms of its voting access policies. But nevertheless, we're still seeing this push-pull where there are some efforts to make it harder to vote, but there are also efforts to make it easier and to learn from the lessons of last year, to see the policies that worked, that voters liked, and to try to extend them into the future. Well, this is Sir Nalaini writes, we saw how the younger Asian Americans came together in Georgia. As an Asian immigrant in my 60s, I would like to see even the older Asians get informed and involved to repel these voter suppression tactics. Many of us came to escape more repressive regimes and need to support any attempt at suppressing or oppressing any people in any manner. Jonathan writes, the raft of new voter suppression laws is a direct result of the Supreme Court's gutting of the Voting Rights Act. These new laws have to be litigated one at a time in a lengthy 
process. Jesse writes, if people have restricted access to voting, it would behoove Democratic Party to rent buses, get people ID'd, have photocopies made ahead of time, potentially avoiding problems, and best the Republican Party at their game. Let me go to Stephen in San Francisco. Hi, Stephen. Hi. I just had a a couple of questions. Um, One uh, relates to whether or not um, the states would who are engaged in these voting suppression activities would have any constitutional challenge to H.R. 1 mm. under uh, Section 4 of the Constitution, which allows for the time, place, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives to be made by the states, although there's that exception that follows it. And then the other question is, does H.R. 1 only apply to federal elections, and would states still be allowed to engage in voter suppression for statewide elections. Stephen, thanks. Dale Ho? Sure. Um, so let me take the first part of that question. As, 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 the, call, as, the, as the listener noted, um, the time, place, and manner of, electing, of, of, of conducting federal elections is um, initially um, in the Constitution um, um, delegated to the states, except, as the caller noted, there's this, the next provision of the of the, the next um, phrase in the Constitution, except um, um, to the extent that Congress does not make laws um, to the contrary. So essentially, yes, states are initially tasked with creating the, the, the time, place, and manner rules for federal elections, but Congress has authority to override um, those um, state laws as, as insofar as they relate to federal elections. And there's a great 2013 opinion from um, the Supreme Court, authored by Justice Scalia, um, my favorite opinion by um, Justice Scalia, which makes that um, rule crystal clear. Um, but the, 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 the caller noted, I think, um, a key point here, which is that H.R. 1, to the extent that it requires things like election day registration, um, no excuse absentee voting, um, et cetera, uh, it only expressly does so with respect to federal elections, because that's what Congress has authority over. Now, I think as a practical matter, um, most states don't want to operate two different systems for state and for federal elections. Mm. When the motor voter law was passed in 1993, there was some concern that, well, Congress could, and the federal government could say that states have to provide voter registration at DMVs and social service agencies, um, but states might say that those registrations are only good for federal elections. And really that hasn't happened. Um, states want to have a simple voting system, one set of rules for both federal and state elections. And I think we could all anticipate that as a practical matter, if H.R. 1 did become law, those voting rights provisions, um, states um, would likely apply them to both federal and state elections. Again, Dale Ho is director of the ACLU Voting Rights Project. Eliza Swearen-Becker is counsel for the Voting Rights and Elections Program at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Eliza Swearenbecker, let's just say H.R. 1 passes the Senate. Uh, and um, I, I guess the question that I feel like is coming up a lot is sort of what role could the Supreme Court play if there are some legal questions related to H.R. 1? And then also more broadly, listeners are wondering about what role the Supreme Court could play in terms of state laws that could survive judicial scrutiny. What do you see potentially in this? Or what are some of the things you're watching out for? Well, I think um, hopefully H.R. 1S1 will, in fact, pass the Senate and will be signed into law. I think we are seeing 
um, senators, we are seeing states try to lay markers down to reflect the legal challenges that they may bring right. um, to challenge the For the People Act. Um, what we're seeing is um, language along the lines of the last question, which is, well, election law is within the purview of the states and Congress is exceeding its authority. So therefore, H.R. 1 is not constitutional. As Dale just explained, that's absolutely incorrect. Um, the Constitution expressly gives overriding authority to Congress to make federal election law. So I think that those arguments are not well-founded at all. Um, nevertheless, that doesn't mean we're not going to see them and that cases challenging H.R. 1 aren't going to ultimately um, make their way through the federal courts and possibly to the Supreme Court. Um, having said that, notwithstanding the fact that the Supreme Court has not recently been a friend to voting rights, the Supreme Court's jurisprudence on the elections clause, this clause of the Constitution that gives Congress power over federal elections, has been exceedingly clear. They have said that, the, that Congress can make a federal election code out of whole cloth, that Congress's power over the election, over federal elections is broad and plenary. And that has been consistent throughout the history of Supreme Court jurisprudence on this provision. So while I wouldn't be entirely surprised to see a challenge go to the Supreme Court, the precedent is very strong in terms of supporting the constitutionality of H.R. 1. And unlikely to change even with this newly constituted Supreme Court? with a 6-3 conservative majority? <laughs> that is hard to predict. Um, I think uh, the Chief Justice has um, tried to maintain the, the credibility of the institution, has put a lot of weight in past precedent, has himself in a, um, in a recent Supreme Court decision that was, um, that was harmful in terms of partisan political gerrymander, nevertheless, still sort of smiled on the extraordinarily broad power of the elections clause. So I, too soon to know exactly what the court will do. Sure. Um, but but that's what we know now. <laughs> well, uh, Davey writes, I believe that no proof of U.S. citizenship is required in order to register to vote. Don't you think that consequently some non-citizens vote in our elections and this with all this concern about foreign interference in our elections? Dale Ho, could you respond to Davey's question here? Yeah, sure. Um, it's not true. It's it's a it's a common misunderstanding that proof of citizenship is not required to register to vote in American elections. In fact, everyone, when you register to vote, has to sign an attestation under oath under penalty of perjury that you meet your state's requirements for um, being eligible to vote. That's your age, your residence in the state, and your United States citizenship. Um, I went to trial on a on a, on a in a case challenging a law that required people to do more than that show a birth certificate or a passport when you register to vote to show that you are a united states citizen and um, this was in kansas where we asked the state show us all your evidence of people who um, became registered um, while while, while non-citizen um, that justified this law in your view um, they came back with a total of 39 non-citizens who would become registered to vote in the state over a total of 20 years. So that's fewer than two per year. Um, in many cases, these were people who, when they obtained their driver's licenses, checked a box that, that said, no, I am not a United States citizen, but because of an error by 
a government employee, maybe a, a keystroke error, ended up registered to vote by mistake um, through no fault of their own. Um, on the other side of the balance sheet, um, 30,000 people who had tried to register to vote in Kansas had their registration applications rejected because they didn't provide copies of their birth certificates or passports. It was one out of eight people in the state who tried to register to vote during a three-year period. So we know that these laws that require more than just signing um, under penalty of perjury are, are, are completely unnecessary. They stop tens of thousands of people from voting where these laws have been tried. And when you dig down and you look at whether or not non-citizens become registered um, um, you know, under a, 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 a signing a penalty under penalty of perjury system, what we find is very few do. And those who do almost always, it's because of a mistake. Hmm. Well, we just have 30 seconds or so left, but Eliza Swearn-Becker, could you just leave us with your thoughts about what is at stake, knowing that the Brennan Center has been tracking these more than 250 bills? Well, I think voting rights are at stake across the country. And what we have seen is that voters turned out in historic numbers last year. They used methods of voting, vote by mail, early voting um, in unprecedented ways. And now there is a backlash directly in response to voters using their voice in the democratic process. And so we have to uh, push back against those state efforts and we have to advance federal legislation to protect voting rights, the For the People and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. Eliza Swearen-Becker of the Brennan Center for Justice, Dale Ho of the ACLU. Thank you both for being here. Thank you to Grace One for producing today's segment. Thanks to our listeners for their comments and questions. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.